Hi everyone, I'm David Green. Welcome to episode one of series eight of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Before we get into this week's episode, I just wanted to acknowledge that we are continuing to endure a worrying and uncertain time. COVID-19 has changed our world irrevocably, and I just want to say to every listener, stay well, stay safe, and try to keep positive. I hope the podcast provides some respite, albeit brief, from the situation. Okay, on with the show. This series marks a number of landmarks for the Digital HR Leaders podcast. First, we've passed the landmark of 100,000 listens, which exceeds all our expectations when we launched episode one. So thank you very much for listening. Secondly, the podcast is about to reach its first birthday. Yes, believe it or not, I am one. To celebrate, we thought we'd do something different. So Ian, our producer, has managed to persuade me to record a special episode of the podcast where I'll be in the hot seat, answering questions from you. If you'd like to ask me anything, please send me a message on LinkedIn. Series 8 of the podcast includes some material we recorded before the escalation of the coronavirus outbreak and other episodes we have recorded in the last few weeks. As one of our upcoming guests, Heather McGowan, has written recently, the pandemic has accelerated the future of work. Many of the trends we expected to develop over the next year have come to pass now. CHROs, as a recent article in The Economist highlights, are at the fulcrum of organisations' response to the crisis, just as the CFO was in the global financial crisis. Indeed, this crisis makes the main topic of this week's episode with Ravin Jesuthazen on the role of HR in the future of work even more important. Ravin is one of the lead authors of a fascinating recent study called HR 4.0, Shaping People's Strategies in the Fourth Industrial Revolution, which is a collaboration between the World Economic Forum, Unilever, Saudi Aramco, and Willis Towers Watson, where Ravin is managing director. The study was launched at Davos earlier this year. In our conversation, Ravin and I discuss the six imperatives that comprise HR 4.0, which include building an agile learning culture, developing new leadership capabilities, and enhancing the employee experience. We also walk through examples of organizations who are already experiencing the benefits from an advanced approach to managing and developing people. We also look at the key skills required by the Chief People Officer and how these are changing. And we also explain why HR decision science, or people analytics, is the key underpin of the future HR function. This episode is a must-listen for CHROs and other HR leaders, as well as those working in people analytics, workforce planning, and employee experience roles, and indeed anyone interested in how the HR function is adapting to the future of work. Also, to celebrate one year of the podcast, we thought we'd tell you a little bit more about our company, Insight222. We set up Insight222 to help our clients put people analytics at the center of business. Insight222 is a global professional services firm providing leading-edge consulting, learning, networking, and advisory services that enable organizations to deliver business value through people analytics and data-driven HR. Interacting directly with chief human resources officers and their key staff in people analytics, strategy, planning, and digital HR, our clients and partners include 70 of the world's leading organizations. If you want to find out more, please visit insight222.com or get in touch directly with me. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Ravin Jezuthezen, uh, Managing Director at Willis Towers Watson and Global Thought Leader 
and author on the future of work, automation, and human capitals of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Welcome to the show, Raven. It's great to have you here. Oh, thank you, David. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. Can you share um, an introduction to your background, your role at Willis Towers Watson, and some of the other activities that you're, that you're involved in as well? Sure, be del- delighted to. So I've been with Willis Towers Watson um, coming on just over 25 years now. Um, have um, played a variety of roles at the firm, have been privileged to have covered virtually every aspect of the HR life cycle through, through that time in terms of helping develop new intellectual capital, lead businesses, etc. Have also written three books on the future of work, all with my good friend and colleague, John Boudreau. And I also play a number of roles for the firm externally. I sit on the World Economic Forum Steering Committee on Work and Employment and have had the privilege of working on them over the last five years on a variety of projects related to work and digitalization and automation, and um, lead a number of our different research efforts, some of which we're going to be talking about today. We are. And you know, you must have seen a lot of change in those 25 years, because HR has, has, has really changed a huge amount. It absolutely is. It absolutely has. Um, you know, the I started off my career, then Towers Parent in executive pay, went into broad-based rewards, went into talent management, and um, it's been fabulous to have been able to sort of learn and grow in one organization in that way. But it's been both the, it's really been opportunity, opportunity both within and externally as that, as our profession has just changed so dramatically. Great. And, and obviously great. John Boudreau, obviously, has been a previous guest on the podcast. Indeed. So it's great to have his co-author uh, with us on, the, on three of the books that, 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 that he's produced over the years. So you've talked about, obviously, the research, the World Economic Forum. You've led numerous research projects for them over, over the years. And we're going to spend most of the time in our conversation today talking about the study that you've actually recently presented at the World Economic Forum in Davos. Um, the report's called HR 4.0, Shaping People's Strategies in the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And to those of you listening who haven't already checked out the, the study, I definitely recommend you doing so. And we'll provide links uh, so you can do that. Um, uh, when we publish this. Um, what can you share with listeners what the study is comprised of, um, the headline finding and, and some of the partners that work with you on the research as well? Sure. So I, we were just so incredibly privileged to have partnered with Unilever and Saudi Aramco, two outstanding organizations, um, as part of this project that the World Economic Forum initiated. And it is truly fascinating. Someone asked me how Davos has, and the Forum's annual meeting has changed over the last five years that I've been there. And when I first went there, there were virtually no CHROs. In the last two years, um, we've had a ex- extensively and rapidly growing presence of CHROs um, at the World Economic Forum. The content is much more HR-oriented, um, over the, has, has become much more HR-oriented over the last two years. And so this particular study was, I think, uh, absolutely at the right time in the sense that for the last three years, the forum has been talking about the fourth industrial revolution yeah. and this, this magnitude of different forces that are reshaping every facet of human life. And certainly HR is probably at the bleeding edge of so many of these changes. And that's really what this report does is that it reflects on how the rapid advances in digitalization, the changing social norms that we're seeing around the world, um, dramatic globalization, integration of supply and human value chains, um, how, how do all of those forces come together to f- fundamentally ask some very different questions of both work within organizations and the HR profession? Yeah, and as I said, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And, and I think 
I, what I really like about it is the way it's set out. Firstly, why is it such a great opportunity for HR? Then the six imperatives we're going to talk about in a right. minute. And then what we're going to talk about after that, some of the case studies, I think, to really bring some of these imperatives to life, which I think is so important and makes it really Indeed. real for, for, the, for the listeners, I think, um, who yeah. are going to read the report afterwards. So six imperatives that, that form the basis of HR 4.0. So let's take each of those in turn. Um, I'll let you talk through the imperative and, and why it's important. Um, and then we'll talk about some examples, I think, uh, after that. So the first imperative is in developing new leadership capabilities. Yeah, and that that was first for some very, very uh, good reasons. I t- those forces of change that I touched on a second ago, David, yeah. um, are changing organizations in fundamentally different ways. I often, in my various speeches and presentations around the world, I often say, you know, for my first 20 years of my career, uh, I spent lots of time helping clients deal with that eternal question of are we a centralized organization versus a decentralized yeah. one. And um, the last three or four years, this that question has absolutely come off the table because every organization recognizes it's a distributed enterprise. Yeah. You're either the hub and or the spoke of a digital ecosystem. And with that, some dramatic and very significant new leadership capabilities that are required to orchestrate the distributed enterprise. And with that, um, you know, the, the types of skills demanded of leaders um, to run businesses, to run businesses where, you know, control is multifaceted. Control looks very, very different than it did in the past. And, um, you know, the skills required really couldn't be more different than the ones that are required of centralized versus decentralized organizations. You know, skills around learning agility, skills related to soft control, skills related to influence and coaching, um, being present, um, you, you know, uh, being present in a world where presence is is increasingly at a premium. Yeah. So how do you sort of shape behavior every day when you might never be seen or see your workforce? And that's a real challenge for, for, for leaders in some of these big, complex organizations. And obviously, Indeed. HR can help play a part in, in helping equip right. them um, and obviously train new leaders as well. Absolutely. Yeah, and we're seeing certainly with many organizations, um, HR stepping up and changing the profile of what leaders looks like, changing the, you know, the traditional models, the traditional view of what, that, what successful talent would look like. And building some, and I think it feeds beautifully into diversity and inclusion, yeah. um, because I think there is greater recognition for the power of diversity in leading some of these distributed models. This is great. And, and then the second one, I guess, another huge change that we're seeing, a lot of this is being caused in, in many respects by the accelerating progress in technology. Yeah. And I think the second imperative is around managing the integration of technology in the workplace. Um, and I know this is part of the book that you, one of the books you Indeed. did with John, that actually this is an opportunity for HR to lead the way in, in, in actually helping this happen. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's fascinating. So when John and I wrote Reinventing Jobs, um, you know, the book has about 120 case studies of examples of how, how organizations using that framework in the book can get to the optimal combinations of humans and machines. And the thing that is really fascinating um, about the book, as well as this particular imperative, is is this point about legacy that we make at the opening, at the intro to the book, that legacy is the fundamental obstacle to the digitalization of work and the, and the future of work. And what we're seeing in um, organizations that are really progressive is that they lead with the work 
yeah. as opposed to, you know, with all of these technology options, starting with a neat piece of technology kit yeah. um, and then working and trying to sort of start with the technology and get to the talent versus starting with the work and figuring out how do I get to the optimal combination. So this is actually a tremendous opportunity for HR to play a leadership role in helping the business start with, with the work and lead to what that optimal combination is versus having the, the tail of technology wag the dog of the organization. Yeah, and I think when John and I were talking on the podcast, he even talked about that might mean organizations going at a pace that, that the workforce can cope with rather than just exactly. running ahead too fast. Absolutely right. Um, you know, it's, it's the pace thing. It also is the, it's the thing that we find when organizations lead with technology is they miss the nuances of the work. Um, and there's almost inevitably, um, in all these examples I've seen, the work I've done with clients over the last five years, significant breakage in the organization when technology leads. And it's such a fundamental change in how we, we look at work, isn't it? Whereas we'd previously right. looked at jobs. Exactly. Whereas now the technology is, as you said, we've already got to get down to the, the nitty gritty of the work and actually look at tasks and, and, and everything else. That is, that is so true, David, because you know what happens when you lead with the technology um, and we, we've done some research on this. We went out and talked to some uh, 1,200 companies um, in, in our Pathways to Digital Enablement survey last year. And what was fascinating was we started to see the appearance of this maturity curve. So companies that have really gotten automation, have done it for a long time, lead with the work. And because what it lets them do when you lead with the work is you end up with potentially three outcomes. Where does the technology substitute? Where could it augment? And then what new human work does it create? Yeah. Versus if you lead with the technology, 90% of the time you end up with one outcome, pure substitution. Yeah. Because you're looking to take technology and match it to the job of a person. And, you, and many organizations that do that often chase cost reduction and often that comes with headcount. But the breakage and the consequences and capability loss you know, are probably three to four X greater than the cost savings they might have realized. So that's two really meaty topics of the first two <laughs> imperatives. And then the, the third one is, is something that arguably is the biggest topic in HR at the moment yeah. around enhancing the employee experience. Yeah. And, you know, again, it goes back to all of those forces, the speed you talked about, um, and this recognition that the employee experience of tomorrow really needs to be something that looks very, very different from the one that from the inertia, if you will, that has carried us from the second industrial revolution to where we are today. Yeah. And if you think of the things that have, have changed, you know, that deal was predicated on a world of significant st stability, a world where people, you know, worked, studied for maybe 12 years, worked for 30, and then retired for 20, versus the world we're in today, where learning needs to be perpetual because yeah. the half-life of skills are shrinking. Um, our lifespans are at least 30 years longer than when that original deal was formulated. And so what you're seeing with the employee experience is that it's one that's much more agile. It's one where keeping talent relevant is really kind of the centerpiece of the new deal. Um, and that's really, I think, the promise of thoughtful organizations is, you know, I will keep you relevant in a rapidly changing world either within or without. Um, and, and so that employee experience, I think, is becoming just so tremendously different. 
Plus, you've also got all the technologies we just talked about shaping that experience yep. with, with the employees every day. Well, it's two things really, isn't it? So firstly, employees want a very different experience Indeed. because they want consumer-like experiences just like they right. get with you know Netflix and everything else. And it's almost for HR having to move away from this idea of one size fits all yes. to far more personalized and, and based exactly. on what people want to do with their careers or what they want to learn, when they want to learn it, et cetera. Right. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely right. And that that lack of homogeneity, if you will, um, in the experience is a tremendous challenge for most organizations because HR's legacy was based on standardization and consistency um, yeah. versus now it's it's not three or four additional new deals. It's, it's a spectrum. And how do we accommodate a variety of diverse needs within a continuum of, of solutions that we might provide? And again, employee experience, the whole concept of it, and an opportunity for HR to to do things with and for the workforce rather than doing things to, to them. Indeed, yeah. indeed. So the fourth imperative, actually very closely related, in fact, to enhancing the employee experience is around building an agile and personalized learning culture. Absolutely. And, you know, it ties back to my point, David, about learning and keeping talent relevant, really becoming the centerpiece of the New Deal. And this pivot from a mindset of I learn, I do, I retire over a you know, 30-year working career and maybe a 60-year life to yeah. a mindset of learn, unlearn, learn, unlearn, maybe relearn, take a sabbatical, come back to working. And you know, doing that over potentially a 60- or 70-year working life, um, as, as has been talked about. And so this idea of continuous learning as the half-life of skills shrinks, as new technology comes in, you know, work is going to be very rapidly be substituted and augmented and new work being created. How do we ensure that talent can keep, keep up with that? And the responsibility of the organization to actually ensure the continued relevance of talent. And I think you're seeing that play out with the massive investments that many organizations like AT&T, Amazon, Starbucks, uh, and others are making in in ensuring the continued relevance of their workforces. And I guess as well, I mean, we, we with the work we do at My HR Future here, we did some research last year around how people want to learn, and that's changing as well. Exactly. So this idea of big organisations just providing classroom training is is yes, that's still part of it. Right. But actually, most people want to learn in a very entirely different way. Indeed. Um, this is the agile part, I guess, of, of of the culture that you talked about. Absolutely right. You know, you're seeing such a diversity of methods as we learn and understand what's going to be most efficient in different cultures and different situations with different talent pools. And the area that I'm personally really intrigued by because I'm, I'm I think we're starting to see the gains and the benefits from it are the use of virtual reality and augmented reality to ensure that you know we, we don't have the legacy cycle of the gap or the gap between learning and doing versus today you know in, in a number of different manufacturing and operating environments we're seeing talent with you know VR goggles with different uh, pieces of equipment actually learning as they're doing you've got you know as you, if you don't know how to do something on the equipment you can sort of plug in a virtual coach that you know, sort of guides you through something. You could pl tap into the manual, and I think closing that learn do cycle in mm. in in this era of great speed is going to be absolutely essential. And that's really where VR and AR, I think, could be very powerful. I think I think you're right, and I think the other thing is around linking learning towards 
workforce planning, understanding the aptitude of people to learn new skills or unlearn and relearn. And that then links in quite nicely with the fifth imperative, which is around establishing metrics for valuing human capital. My personal area of interest, <laughs> as you know, but Indeed. I mean, you'd like to sort of um, expand on that on that part. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, it's difficult to engender the sort of investment we're talking about here if human capital is not at least on par with physical capital and financial capital and customer capital. And so having the metrics that sort of create a, a more uniform view of, of return, I think, is, is, is essential. And so we have a number of cases in the report, as you know, and we're seeing lots and lots of interest um, in terms of identifying what are the right metrics that are going to give that visibility. And this is really where the automation and the new technologies have been really powerful. So yeah. the applications of machine learning and predictive analytics in the development of new measures of human capital, in demonstrating business outcomes and economic returns, uh, is, has, has been, again, a really powerful force. And we're starting to see a shift towards that. We're seeing, um, we saw the ISO standard for human capital reporting right. come out. We're seeing the, 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 the second in the US actually talking about having meaningful human capital metrics you know, in reports. Uh, shareholders are interested, more and more interested in this. I, I, I can see it happening more in merger and acquisition right. discussion. You know, we want to understand the human capital before we, we move exactly. forward with this. Um, and then, of course, we saw the, the business roundtable talking about we're not, right. you know, we're not just talking about value for shareholders now. We're talking about values for employees. We're talking about values for consumers. We're talking about values for the environment as well. Exactly. It's, it's far more multifaceted than, it, than it's ever been. Yes, yeah, absolutely is. And, and at Davos this year, on, on the heels of this report, we, we did have a conversation about, you know, what might a path forward look like? Because to your point, there's so many wonderful efforts. How do we leverage them and connect them so we can benefit from all of the good work that's been done as opposed to reinventing the wheel in one part of the world or, re or reinventing the wheel or perhaps a, a regulator in another part of the world starting from scratch. There is so much great work out there. And we're seeing, obviously, with the metric stuff, you talked about the predictive analytics, that the growth of people analytics is quite phenomenal, which Indeed. I'm obviously very pleased <laughs> about. Um, but a lot of the big organizations I know that contribute to this report have very significant um, people analytics capability in teams. You know, I know obviously the the, the work that you, Lena and her team are doing at Unilever is particularly interesting. Indeed. And um, I think that we're seeing this now that people analytics moving almost a few years ago is something nice to have in HR is something absolutely essential. Yes. Um, and interestingly, um, to bringing that back around analytics. You know, you guys at Willis Towers Watson published something towards the end of last year, actually, around the value of employee experience and and its its relationship with business results as well. I yes. think, which is a particularly interesting thing that probably fits in quite well here. It does. It actually fits in beautifully. And thank you for sharing that piece of research on on your uh, on your sort of monthly um, release of articles. It's it, I must say, just as an aside, that that is. One of my absolute look forwards to every month. Um, oh, thank you. Just actually see the, the new stuff. Do you that take checks? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, it's really sort of very helpful. You thank know, you. Your curation of all that great content. But um, to your point about the uh, the high performing employee experience, HPEX. You know, we're at the firm Willis Towers Watson. We're blessed with 
getting millions and millions of data points because of our employee insights business. And my colleagues have just done an outstanding job of over a multi-year, 30-year period, actually looking at what does that high-performing employee experience actually look like and quantifying its return and looking at differences between high-performing organizations versus the lesser-performing organizations and, and what that experience actually looks like. And it's fascinating to see the very discernible differences. Um, you know, not surprising, but it's great to actually see the data yeah. because, again, to that point about equal visibility, now it has equal visibility as does measures of, you know, capital investment or measures in, in a customer relationship. Great. And, and so we've, we've had leadership um, integrating technology in the workplace, starting with the job rather than the technology. Enhancing the employee experience, yep. um, building an agile and personalized learning culture, people analytics and metrics, so that's five. And then the sixth imperative is around embedding diversity and inclusion. Indeed. And it, it goes all the way back up to the first imperative around, um, you know, what does it actually mean to lead and work in this fourth industrial revolution? And I think the growing recognition that what might have started as largely a compliance movement, you know, many, many years ago around diversity and inclusion is actually a mission critical imperative for organizations if they are in fact to stay relevant mm. in this new world of work. Um, you know, the legacy silos and boundaries that we might have artificially set up just, just don't work and are such massive impediments to the success of organizations. And so, you know, diversity and inclusion in many ways is sort of almost an underpinning for all of this change going forward. So we looked at the six imperatives now. Yeah. Uh, and as I was saying in the introduction, really, I think one of the things I really like about the study is it provides several examples of organizations who are already responding to this need for change. Um, I thought it'd be great if you could share a couple of examples with listeners now. So we won't share them all because yes. we want them to read the report as well, Indeed. but just a couple of couple of examples. Yeah. Um, so just a couple that ju jump out. We started off talking about what leadership looks like. And John and I had this example in Reinventing Jobs, and it's in, in this report as well. But to me, one of the great examples of this pivot in leadership from the second and third industrial revolutions to the fourth um, is Hire. Hire is um, the largest appliance manufacturer in the world, um, based in China. And it's truly fascinating. You know, they acquired GE's appliance business, which is a 110-year-old company. And so organizations, two organizations that were built for the second industrial revolution. Yeah. But in a very short amount of time, their CEO has pivoted the company from a traditional assembly line with manufacturing processes where the gap between the employee and the end consumer really couldn't have gotten much further to creating a set of 200 micro businesses and the, with the whole goal of closing the gap between the, the employee and the consumer. Yep. And so now you have an organization that is perpetually innovating and developing new ideas around appliances. They have developed some of the most leading and amazing technology associated with turning the refrigerator into a portal effectively. So think of food as a service. Um, and you might not know, David, that you're going to run out of milk in two weeks or yep. two days rather, but your, your fridge knows. And your fridge has placed that order with Tesco's, Amazon, etc., wow. and all of a sudden milk shows up because right. we're going to run out tomorrow. Um, but it's it's absolutely brilliant. And with that, though, um, the ask of leadership because leadership at hire is not there to sort of supervise and manage and control, 
They're there to make allocation decisions, allocation of capital and allocation of talent to the parts of the business that are run by self-governed employee teams who are coming up with new ideas. And those ideas are pitched to the business and the business then makes decisions to allocate capital and the best talent to the best ideas. So it's a fascinating example of what it means to lead a truly distributed enterprise. Yeah, and I think they've, they've rightly recognized really leading the way, if you pardon the pun, in, in, in this new leadership model. Indeed. Um, and I think it's something that you know, a lot of companies are trying to emulate. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, the, it's, it's, but it, as we're seeing, it's really tough to do. You know, then again, I'll go back to my earlier points about what gets in the way and its legacy. Yeah. And but I think what should give many organizations heart is Hire was able to break with a hundred plus year old legacy and move forward in a fundamentally different way. So if they can do it, Indeed. any organization can. Indeed. And maybe one other example to, to share. Sure. The, the other example I'd share is, is Unilever. Um, you know, again, we were really privileged to have Unilever as, as one of the partners in this report. And they're doing so much work across all six of the imperatives. But the thing that I think um, Lena Nair and her team are doing best is preparing Unilever for the future of work. And there's a great detail of their framework for the future of work that we were privileged enough to, uh, to work with them on and how they think about this continued um, investment in the workforce, the reskilling, the upskilling, and the redeployment of talent as more automation comes in, as the half-life of skills shrinks. How do we ensure that we've got an agile enough way of managing the employee experience in a way that's responsive to these changes so that talent can still be relevant in a variety of different ways and in a variety of different relationships with Unilever? Two great examples. And I think it leads on quite nicely to another report that you've been involved in. Yes. You must have been a very busy man <laughs> the last few months. Um, it, 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 almost this, the, the picture that you paint with the six imperatives and the, and the, the World Economic Forum report really tells us that a different version of HR is required yes. from what we've traditionally been um, used to. And that means a new type of chief people officer or chief HR officer as well. Right. Lena obviously is, is a great example of, of the new breed. Um, you in, in This report, which I think has just been published, it's a collaboration between Willis Towers, Watson and, and Sherm's people and HR, HRPS. HRPS. Yeah. On the future, Chief People Officer, and again, another great report which is available for everyone to read. Um, without going to too much detail in this study, um, can you summarize the key findings? And also, we maybe let's um, have a quick overview of the five pivot points um, sure. that kind of are the foundation. Yeah, so um, the two reports parallel each other mm. uh, surprisingly well. Um, in Helps having the same, same authors. Same authors, yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> it is helpful. Um, uh, although the lenses with which each was approached is quite different. You know, the, the WEF's lens around the fourth industrial revolution and perhaps a much bigger vision versus yeah. HRPS and Sherm's lens around the future of the, the, that role, the chief people officer. And so as part of the report, we talked to over 500 chief HR officers from around the world, CEOs and board members. So we really did get a multi-stakeholder view, did lots of virtual focus groups and, and the like. And what was really fascinating with, with, these, with the, the five pivot points um, is, A, not only do they, do they line up, but I think they set the stage for the reinvention of the role and the profile of talent coming into that role. 
And to your point, we've seen some some outstanding successes with the likes of Lena Naya, Diane Gerson, for example, at, at IBM, um, of of what that prototypical mm. um, CHRO might look like. But very quickly, you know, the the, the five pivot points uh, yeah. for your uh, for your viewers. The first was pushing the boundaries on organizational agility. The second was unleashing digitalization. The third was embracing perpetual work reinvention. Um, the fourth was rethinking culture and leadership, and with that, diversity and inclusion. And the fifth um, was elevating the HR decision science. And you can see straight away how they dovetail really well Indeed. with those six imperatives. Indeed. Um, and I, on the HR decision science, I was quite interested. I can't remember the exact figures because I haven't got them in front of me, but that shows that there's a huge opportunity that still hasn't really been realized. So I think there's a recognition that the data that people have available isn't right. what we need to be able to really take the decision science to the next level. Yeah, and David, that point about decision science is really important. And I'll, I'll go back to work that you know my colleague John Boudreau has done when he um, unveiled his talent ship model back in Beyond HR from you know a couple of almost two decades ago. Um, but this profession has had a decision science about it. You know, there's been a method to the madness. Yeah. We, we know what drives engagement. We know how to shape behavior. We understand the psychology of organizations and how the different dynamics of teams work. And yes, we're blessed with lots of new tools and methods and a lot more data today. But how do we ensure we anchor all of those new methods in the decision science that we've had uh, that has served this profession quite well and not substitute that decision science with data. I think it's that great T.S. Eliot quote, isn't it? You know, what um, what knowledge, uh, what wisdom have we lost in the pursuit of knowledge and what knowledge have we lost in the pursuit of information? Yes, I think it's a, a very good quote. Um, and actually, it's just come to me as well, the, the the five pivot points are almost the enablers to help deliver the six imperatives. Indeed, that that's actually re that's really well said because the the pivot points really are what we see as being the capabilities of the chief people officer and by default then the the HR team and the function, yeah. which are then required to actually deliver on these imperatives for human capital. Perfect. So, like me. You're, you're and probably even more so than me, you're fortunate to spend a lot of time with some of the real pioneers in our, in our field. You mentioned Lena and Diane as, as two great examples of that. Johnny's obviously another. Um, for those that aspire to the chief people officer role, um, can you provide example of a couple of current chief people officers, not Lena or Diane, um, <laughs> who are effectively combining the six imperatives and five pivot points within their, within their organizations? Yeah, I, I think... You can have Diane if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, I... I always turn to Diane, we were former colleagues about, um, gosh, about 20 years ago uh, at then Tower's Parent. Um, so a good friend and someone I've respected and admired for a long time. You know, some others, I think, in, in sort of that next generation, if you will, I would say Zoe Hart at, at Upwork, um, incredibly thoughtful and insightful. And Zoe contributed to um, to the to the HRPS report as well. And then I think a couple of others would be Scott Petaskey at Amazon, at Amazon Consumer. Um, I've been a huge fan of Scott's for many years, incredibly thoughtful and bright. Um, and Melissa Kramer at Target, which, um, you know, is is a retail organization in the United States for those of, a, those of your, your viewers who aren't familiar with the organization. But in the face of just tremendous competition from the likes of Amazon and Walmart and others, 
Target has just done exceptionally well, and I think their CEO was just recently named CEO of the year. Right. Um, and you know, no, it's no small part due to Melissa and her team's efforts, and they're just an, she's built just an incredibly thoughtful, bright team um, that is pursuing all all of these imperatives. And an example again of a legacy type organization that can thrive exactly. if it's prepared to adapt and adopt a maybe a different mindset. Indeed, and get beyond its legacy. So this leads on to the question that we will be asking all our guests on the show actually in, in 2020. Um, AI and automation, we've talked quite a little bit about it today. Do you see them as an opportunity or a threat to HR? So I see it mostly as an opportunity. And I say mostly because I think there is tremendous upside for HR as a profession. So let me give you a couple of data points, David. Okay. So if you think of back in the second industrial revolution, and well, go back to the first, 100% of work being done by humans. Our latest um, future of work study indicated that that number is today down to about 75%. And in the next three years, we'll continue going down. Um, and what we'll have is this plurality of means for work. Yeah. So different human relationships, employees, gig talent, independent contractors, outsourced employees, and different forms of automation, you know, RPA, AI, et cetera. And I think the big opportunity for our profession is to shift its mandate from being a steward of employment to being a steward of work yeah. and helping to orchestrate all of these different means. And that really is kind of an underpinning for both the HRPS study as well as the, the HR 4.0 study from the WEF. So I see it as, as a tremendous opportunity for HR to not only stay relevant, but to dramatically increase its impact. Now, I think between here and there, there will be tr tremendous amount of dislocation and change. I think we will see significant disruption to business models, a lot more unrest than we've seen um, even in the last five years. I think, particularly from a social perspective, as ideas like universal basic income become critical elements mm. in enabling the workforce to transition to this new model. Um, and, and we, you know, in writing reinventing jobs, get HR leading the way in helping organizations get beyond the job to be to more seamlessly connect talent to work, I think is going to be imperative. And again, a massive opportunity. Great. Brilliant answer. And thank you for being a guest on the show, Ravin. It's been fantastic to speak to you about all the great research that you've been involved in. Um, how can people stay in touch with you, both on social media and, and in other means? Absolutely. So my email address is rabin.jsuthasan at willistowerswatson.com. All one word, longest email address in the world. <laughs> um, and um, I'm also on Twitter um, at rabinjsuthasan and on LinkedIn as well. And I would be thrilled to have as many followers as possible. Fantastic. Well, I definitely recommend that you all follow Ravin. And thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you, David. Again, such a privilege and an honor. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe via your podcast app of choice. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. If you haven't already, do check out the My HR Future Academy at myhrfuture.com. It's a learning experience platform for HR professionals looking to get certified in people analytics, digital HR, and workforce planning. You can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter by going to the My HR Future website.
That's all for this episode, but please make sure you tune in next week when we'll be speaking to Thomas Rasmussen about how by bringing employee experience, people analytics and digital together, National Australia Bank has created a powerhouse that delivers evidence-based management and the consumerization of the employer relationship. So don't miss that one. Stay safe, stay well, and I'll see you next time.